How many of you guys in here have ever been on a mission trip? Quite a few of you. Some of you, Brad, I think you're the only one in here who's been on one with me. But I want you to imagine for a second, I say, okay, guys, we're going on a trip to India. We're going to go and uh, we're going to share the gospel. Our brother Dawasinghe invited us to go. So we all prayed about it and we're all going together. Just us, everybody in this room. We're on a team. And here's the plan. We're going to go over there. We're going to knock on doors and people come to the door. We're going to say, hi, my name is Doug. I'm here from America. And can I take a few minutes to share with you about the one true living God? We're going to do some mass gathered meetings that Dawa has put together. And so we get on a plane, we head over, land in Delhi. Good first night there, get up the next day, get on a plane, go from Delhi to Bagdogra up in the north. When we get there, Dawa meets us. He takes us in two vans and we go out to the place where we're going to be ministering. And we're in a hotel. And we're at the hotel getting ready to go out with Dawa and a knock comes to the door of my room. And some of you guys are there. We're just talking about what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, it's the police chief of that region. And he says, hey, uh, you guys, you can't go out and do this. You're violating our law. You're here under a tourist visa you uh, are under house arrest in the hotel. You need to leave and go back to America tomorrow. And I look at you as if like, okay, what do we do? What's your first response? Back to America. Yeah. Honor their laws. Huh? Honor their laws. That's not a war. Response, uh, first response. Yeah, I did. I say that. I did, that, that was the first response. That was a real event. Didn't happen with you guys. It happened with a team I took to Russia back in the late 90s. I'm over in one part of Russia about an hour and a half, two hours outside of Moscow. And the police chief comes to the hotel. He meets with me as a leader. People are around watching. And he says, listen, you guys can't be preaching your version of, of God here. You need to leave our city or it's going to be bad for you. You're under house arrest in the hotel. You need to leave tomorrow or as quick as you can. And we just arrived. So I went to my room. I talked to a couple of other guys that were helping me, and I said, listen, let's just wait a minute. Let me go to my room. I went to my room, and I prayed because I didn't know what to do. I never had that. I'd been in ministry only a few years, and I didn't have a clue what to do with this group because I had people just like you over there who they were just going to tell people about Jesus. And I'm sitting there, and as I'm praying about it, I'm like, Lord, you know, I don't even know if I, how I will, I don't know what I would do if he really put handcuffs on me. I don't know. What about these people? And I was just wrestling with God on what to do as we took some time because we couldn't go anywhere. Some people on the team were a little nervous about it, obviously. 
And so I'm sitting there praying about it, and I uh, police officer comes back, and a chief, and he says, uh, we need to bring you down to the station. So me and another team member went down to the station. We went down there. He said, you're guilty of this, this, and this. I said, no, we're not. Uh, I, we have this authorization to be here. And to make a long story short, um, we ended up paying a bribe fine. It was a fine, but it was extortion. But we paid it. It wasn't even that much. It was like 30 bucks a person, but it was a lot for them at that particular place. And, um, but I got a chance to share my testimony with a guy. And I was sharing about the bird strike and sharing how I was in the military and law enforcement. And I had peace with God, even though I was in the midst of death when I was in that airplane. And so he brings me back and says, okay, you still need to leave. You paid your fine, but you need to leave as soon as you can. And so I got the team together and I basically said, listen, I, I don't feel the freedom to leave. And if you want to stay in a hotel and not go out, I can't make you do it, but we're here and I really feel like we need to do what we came to do. That's what I'm sensing right now as I pray. So we went about our business to do what we were going to do. We, I mean, that, was, we, that took place in the evening. So the next day we get up and we didn't leave. And I had a college outreach I was scheduled to go speak at. A bunch of college students were getting together. We were going to have music. I was going to speak. And then we had a, an evangelistic crusade that night that I was going to preach at. And so I'm on my way from the hotel to that college event with my translator. And the police guy pulls up next to me and said, start, he just gives me a, a, a story that's not true, but he's trying to coerce me to get in the car with him. And I said, no, I, I, I got to go do this. And he said, but I really need you to come this way. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I've got a commitment. I got to go do this thing over here. He gets out of the car. He puts his hand on his gun. He puts his other hand on my shoulder and says, you need to get in the car. So I said, okay. So me and the translator get in a car because I don't speak a lot of Russian at this point. And um, so as we're in the car, he just starts driving. And uh, he, he says, you know, yesterday you said you felt peace in your plane story. He goes, do you feel peace now? That's what he says. And I looked at the translator and I said, what does he mean? I mean, what's he talking about? He, so he asked him, he said, what are you talking about? He said, ask him again, does he feel peace now? And so the translator, he said, he's saying, do you feel peace? And I said, yeah, I'm at peace. Why wouldn't I be? And he said, because you're never going to see your family again. He said, we told you to leave. And now you're an example. He said, um, we gave you a chance. And he was telling me through the translator, we're going to kill you. And I looked at the translator and I said, is he serious? Like, is he, is he for real? Is he just, he goes, he's serious. Now, you got to understand something. This is Russia outside of Moscow. This is like the Old West. So basically, whoever ruled an area, they were the law. And 
In Moscow, that year, 5,000 people got murdered, 14,000 people got kidnapped. So they didn't care about killing people. It was not a big deal. They didn't value life. So I'm really, man, I, I, the pucker factor is up for me right now. I'm just going, okay, this is, this is pretty serious. And so I'm just trying to evaluate while I'm in the car. We drive for about 40 minutes. He takes me to um, a, like a train station. Uh, uh, it's a warehouse by a train station and takes me. He's got a driver. It's the driver, the police chief, and me and the translator. And we pull into this parking lot and um, he gets us out and he tells us to follow him. And he takes us up to the second story and into a little room. And it's like a little table wooden table he sits me down at and on the counter there's this laid out like satchel or it's like one of those folding satchel things and it's got torture instruments laid out and I'm looking at that I'm going okay this is getting better every day I mean it's just like I'm like I said what is this and the translator goes I don't know but he was scared the translator was scared he was 21 year old pastor's kid and, um, and so the police chief questions me. He starts talking to me, accusing me of being a spy, that uh, I'm just using the cover of Christianity to come and spy on them to infiltrate Russia and get intelligence. And I tell him, no, it's not true. He produces postcards that, that uh, they had confiscated from people on the team from Jacksonville and saying, this is where you're from, right? This is your city. Is that where your family is? It's a shame you'll never see him again. And he just starts using all these phrases to try to basically scare me. I was like, what is going on? How is this happening? My mind's thinking, do I disarm this guy? Because at first it was just him in the room with me and the translator. And I really felt like I could disarm him free the translator and get him out of there. I'm, I'm having all these thoughts go through my head. And then this spirit of calm just came over me. He said, no, just tell him about Jesus. Just tell him about Jesus. So that's what I did for an hour and a half. Told him about Jesus. How do you start that off? Well, it, it started off with me just responding to his questions. But it... it I, I was basically telling him the reason I was there was to tell people about Jesus. And I would try to ask him. He didn't show a lot of interest, but there was an FSB agent that came in, and that's like the FBI over there. They came in later, and I ended up talking to them and sharing the whole gospel with her and him there. It was a her, female agent. And after an hour and a half... After an hour and a half, it was over. They told me to go down to the car. And when we got down to the car, well, when, when he told us to go out, they stayed back. And he said, that go down to the car where the driver is. When I was walking with the translator, the car was in the parking lot, and we were by a train station. And at the train station, they have cabs. There were taxis there. So I told the guy walking with me, I said, do not get in that police car. Because I was afraid they were going to take us off somewhere and just shoot us. So I said, let's just keep walking to the taxi. Don't run, but walk. Just keep your eyes fixed on the taxi. If it hollers at you, don't stop. Just walk and act like you're talking to me. So that's what we did. We never heard anything. We got in the taxi, and taxi brought us to 
the meeting because by this time the night meeting was going on. They didn't know where I was. The, the whole team was like, they didn't know what had happened. They didn't, I mean, I just, all of a sudden, I'm not there. I'm the leader of the team. I'm the one preaching that night. I'm the one who's kind of responsible for it all. And, but when we got in the car, the translator goes, that was a, like a James Bond. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, that was intense. That was very intense. And I said, what was that all about? And he goes, it's just Russia. You know, it's just the way it is. But it was real. They did not want us there. Now, a year and a half later, they burned down the pastor's house who had invited us there and killed his mother-in-law to send him a message. So they were serious people about this. Persecution is always satanic. It hates believers. And this is the first persecution of the church in Acts 4. And so what we're going to see today is how do we respond to persecution? And it, all, it goes back to Acts chapter 1. Same principles we covered in the very first part where we trust His plan, we trust His power, and we trust His Word. Same message as Acts 1, same principles, just applied differently here. Back there, we trust His plan what? To start in Jerusalem and go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's strategic planning. But we also have to trust His plan when things don't go our way. We trust His power. He said, wait on the Holy Spirit so you know how to speak. But we also have to trust His power when we're in situations outside of our control because of our love for Jesus and telling people about Jesus. And we also have to trust His Word. His message. We said that back in Acts chapter 1. We don't compromise, and Peter does not compromise. He doesn't compromise here. We don't compromise. This all starts with, you know, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter preaches. 3,000 people come into the family of God. Then Peter and John going back to the temple. God has a divine appointment for him. They heal a guy that has been lame for 40 years as kind of an introduction to Peter's second message. He preaches the second message and people are going, wow, I believe. I want to follow Jesus. And the leaders are losing it. Why? Because the one that they want to follow is the one they said is a blasphemer. The one they want to follow is the one they said we need to kill because he's dangerous. The one they want to follow is a threat to their power, to their livelihood. And guess where they're meeting? In the temple. It's the only place big enough where they all can meet. And so, there's been 10 different eras of persecution, or there were in the first 100 years of the church, we, we don't think about them because we're far removed, but Christians back then, you know what they would do? Nero would actually take them and put animal skins around people, around the Christians, and throw them to wild dogs. They were crucified. They were beheaded. They were burned. He would pour oil or wax on them and burn them like torches on street corners or at parties. This is just for being a believer. Domitian 
was the one who used the rack to literally pull their bodies apart for simply being believers in Christ. You know, for you and me, our persecution doesn't kill us. For us, we lose our jobs, maybe. Friends, family, influence, finances. Nevertheless, I think it's a lot easier for us to compromise. There's something cleansing about persecution, too. The threat of death keeps false believers away. John 15, Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples, talks about persecution. And I I want to point out a couple of quick verses there before we get into the text. And then we're going to read from Acts chapter 4. But I want to read John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Most people think they choose Jesus. They think they choose Him. And they hate the idea of His sovereignty in choosing us. They detest it. In fact, I had a guy call me the other day and talk to me and railed about this guy's a Calvinist. Man, he believes that God chose us and he doesn't believe we have anything to do with it. And I said, well, he may be extreme in what he's saying, but there's some elements of truth. There always are elements of truth to what people say. But it clearly says here that Jesus chose them. They didn't choose him. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What does he say? I chose you out of the world. If you go back in Acts, as many as were appointed believed. You see, it's a God chooses us. We have a responsibility to respond to him, but we join him not just in relationship, but partnership. It's a key word that's left out of a lot of gospel presentations. We don't just join Him in relationship. When we join Him, we become a kingdom of priests. A holy nation set apart to be His emissaries, His ambassadors. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's Jesus talking telling his disciples, if if they didn't love me, they're not going to love you. So, Acts 4, we see the first persecution of the church as they respond to this message, but Peter and John hold true. And in this, I want to see the two responses to Peter's message, but then, like I said, how God calls us to respond. And we see three things. Trust His plan, trust His power, trust His word. 
His word. Not a diluted word. There's no compromise. And Peter proclaims it very clearly. Again, he exposits the Old Testament. Imagine that. You got people saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. By the way, Luke 24, where did Jesus start with those two guys on the road to Emmaus? The Old Testament. Can you imagine what kind of sense it would make for Peter to exposit the Old Testament if you didn't know the Old Testament? It's ridiculous. There's no, I mean, if he's expositing and explaining what the text of the Old Testament means and you don't know it, see, they knew it. When he quoted one portion of a verse, they knew the passage. They knew the whole passage. And we're going to look at that. So join with me in 1 through 12 of chapter 4. Acts 4, 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest. And the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Two things upset them. One, that they were even teaching. Second, what they were teaching. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May God bless His Word. Two responses here. First, you see the religious leaders. And how do they respond? With rejection and persecution. It was the priest... It was the temple guards who were like the law enforcement arm of the temple. They were like policemen, so it was very politically. They had a responsibility to keep order. Why? Because when they had disorder, the Romans didn't like it. So they had a responsibility to keep order there. And then you had the Sadducees. They rejected But not everybody rejected. 5,000 men and probably more people because it says men. The word there is man. By the way, two two words in the Greek for man, anthropos and andros. Anthropos is the generic, can be mankind, can be people. But andros, the word used here, is male. And by the way, there is no transgender in the Bible. 
just so you know. It's either male or female, one or the other. Andros means a male. And that's what's used. So 5,000 males, probably their families too, but it just specifies the males there. They repented and had faith. Why? Because they were God's sheep. Remember First, or remember John 10? My sheep hear my voice. They heard, they responded. And the church is seen as a threat to that religious leadership. Why? Where were they proclaiming? In the temple. Who was supposed to have authority in the temple? The priest, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. That was their domain. And you mean Peter and John, these followers of Jesus? By the way, who had already scattered at one point, but now they're back in the temple and they've got over 8,000, could be as high as 15,000 people there following them? Of course that's a threat. You had the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, remember, did not believe in resurrection. They only believed in the Torah for authority. It's not that they didn't believe the other books had any value. It's that they didn't believe that the Psalms, the wisdom books, the, the prophets, they didn't believe those were authoritative. They only believed that Torah had authority. And so they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. And here's the big thing. They didn't believe in God's sovereignty. Isn't that interesting? They believed that you were in charge of your own life. God created you. He gave us the law, but He never intervened. He never interjected Himself into man's affairs. That sounds an awful lot to me like modern progressive liberalism in the church. Very similar in a lot of ways. Did they believe in the Messiah? They didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed they thought this was all there was. They didn't believe in resurrection. So what would Messiah do? If, he, if they did believe in Messiah, I don't think they did, but if they did, He would have just been coming for then and now for those that were alive to enjoy Him when He came. But the Pharisees were different. Now the Pharisees were the blue-collar religious leaders. And the Pharisees were actually a lot more biblical than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the ruling class who basically, they were in it for the money and power. These people, they were, they were upset because they saw... Remember who Annas was and Caiaphas? I mean, uh, you had in the temple, uh, when you went into the court of the Gentiles is where people would buy their animals. Do you know what that was called? That was, that was Annas' place, right? That was Annas' place there. That was Annas' marketplace. If you went in there, do you, he controlled that area. So if you went in, and let's say you came from Galilee and you didn't have a, uh, you didn't have a sacrifice, or maybe you brought yours, his examiners would look at it and go, that one's not pure. You need another one. And he would sell you one at ten times the market price. Why? Because guess who had the deal with the vendors in there? He did. So he had corrupted the temple. Remember what Jesus says? You have made this a den of what? Robbers. A den of thieves. But the Sanhedrin guys were there. 
That's all the priests. That was like the supreme court of the Jewish people. And so they brought them there. But notice a couple of things. It said they took them there. They kept them overnight because it was already evening. So when did Peter start? Peter and John start preaching. When did they start? No, they started at three. The evening sacrifice, remember? It was the evening sacrifice they were going. They, they went there, healed the guy, and then they start proclaiming. And again, what we get in Scripture is not every word that came out of their mouth. We get a representation that God wants us to have of what they spoke about. Because the, the world couldn't contain, couldn't contain the books of everything that was written about what Jesus did. So Peter's preaching, and this is their response. They were greatly annoyed. They were upset, first of all, that they were preaching. Second, at what they were preaching. They were preaching about Jesus of Nazareth, the one they condemned. And so the persecution began. Can you imagine for a second if there was a threat of death for you to trust in Christ? What that would do to our country? If it became punishable by death to profess the name of Jesus. It's that way in a lot of countries. We don't hear about it. We're far removed from it. But it would purify the church, wouldn't it? Do you think people would just blatantly go up and say, yeah, I want to do that if it cost them their life to do that, if it got discovered? It's, it's, it's crazy how purifying it is and persecution is. We don't want any part of it. But God calls us to respond to persecution as His children in a way that, that shows people we have a trust in His plan. Why? That, that, that demonstrates faith that we're not scared and afraid of men. We don't feel like we have to physically take things in our hands to deliver ourselves. They didn't. They didn't fight. It's the first thing I noticed. They were submissive. They went in there. They called them out. And as far as we know, they didn't say anything because they're asking them, by what authority are you doing this? They're just going into jail and they come out. We don't return hatred for persecution. And they're very respectful when they deal with them. If you look at their responses, you know, the way they respond, they referred to them as leaders. It says, Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. He acknowledged their place of authority, which is interesting. And this Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, over in 1 Peter 2.15, notice what he says. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a covering up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know who the emperor was then? It was either Nero or Domitian. I'm not sure which one, but it was one of those. Neither one of them was good. Trust his plan. Paul says in Philippians 1, listen, I'm in chains, but what happened to me was what? To advance the gospel. So I want you to stop and think for a second. Let's say Peter and John went to the John or Alexander or maybe somebody that John knew in the, the priestly family and said, hey, we would like an audience with Caiaphas and Annas to talk to them about Jesus. What do you think would have happened if they would have asked for that? 
It would have been denied and laughed at. Are you kidding? But look at where God brought them. Not just them, the whole Sanhedrin right there. And they're about to hear the Gospel. Peter is about to share with them the Gospel message. He's going to indict them the same way he just preached earlier, and he's going to give them a chance to respond. So, like Paul, what happened to me advanced the Gospel. They go, by what power or name in verse 7? What they're, what they're saying is, by what authority of you, are you in here? And what does Peter say? He tells them whose authority. It's Jesus' authority. He goes right to Jesus. And notice it says, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. So, first way was he trusted in God's plan, but he also trusted in God's power. He had nothing to bring. There was no trust in himself there. And you can tell by what he says. Guys, when I was over in Russia and that happened, and I'm praying, I'm thinking, you know what? This is beyond me, God. I have no ability. I have no wisdom. I have no understanding. I don't know what to do here. I, I, I literally have no idea what you want me to do in this situation. But I am yielded to you and I'm yielded to your word. So if you want us to stay, Lord, I want to stay because I want to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to tell you, there were people not happy, but that's okay. There's going to be people that aren't going to be happy when you take a stand for Jesus. People in your family, friends. Sometimes you're going to be asked to do things that are going to bring things on you that is going to make it uncomfortable for you. Are you going to shrink back? Or are you going to depend on the Holy Spirit? Matthew 10, Jesus says in verse 19, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of, the Father, of your Father speaking through you. Guys, when I was in Russia, I promise you, I was sitting at that table up in that little warehouse place, and that verse was in my mind. It's like, okay, God, I, I need you. I need you because I don't know what to do. And, and I just kept thinking, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. So that's what I did. That FSB agent and that police chief may have never heard the gospel any other time, but they heard it that day. Was I nervous? I was. I, I thought I, I literally thought I was going to die that day. I thought it, I, and I didn't know how I was going to die. That was the scary part for me because I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't know if they were going to shoot me or they're going to poison me. They tried to get me to drink something a couple times. I'm like, I ain't drinking nothing, man. I don't want anything to drink. I'm not kidding you. I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening. But I did know that I sensed God's presence there and I just shared the gospel. I did the bridge illustration, drew it out for him, and gave it to him. And after an hour and a half, they said, go wait in a car. And I'm like, okay. Peter lays out their guilt here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit moved in him to do that. Notice what he says. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed... These were the religious leaders. And he's saying, you arrested us because we healed a guy that had been lame for 40 years. Which law did we violate, by the way? That's what he's saying. 
You're examining us for doing something good. Doesn't the Torah say to love others? To love your neighbor? Isn't that in our law? That's what they would have heard when he said that. He said, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, that's the authority of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him. This man is standing before you well. Again, he indicts them. The Jesus you killed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He tells them, and you know what he does? He exposits Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. He goes by, I want to read it to you real quick because, again, this is a messianic psalm. He's quoting it. They would go to it in their mind. They knew it. They probably memorized it. And listen to what, I'm just going to read a portion of it. Starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Save us. He's saying, this guy you killed is the answer. He's the medicine. (laughs) He is the only way. And he says that. Next, that's his word. We trust not only His plan, His power, but we trust His Word. Jesus is Messiah and the only way into relationship with God the Father. Plain, end of story. Nothing else. No compromise. Doesn't matter what Oprah says. Doesn't matter what the Pope says. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. The Pope was in Ur last week. You know, Ur of the Chaldees? He talked about the God of Abraham, the Jews, the God of Muhammad, the Muslims, and the God of Jesus, the Christians, is the same God. It's not. Unless Jesus is Messiah, you are worshiping a false God. Plain and simple. There's no ambiguity. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. I am the way. The way, not one way. The Gospel is exclusive. And you better get ready because our culture is going to start persecuting you for saying that there's no way but Jesus. No Jesus, no hope. I remember I was over in India years ago. This was back in like 2007, 2008. I'm getting ready to go up onto a platform and preach the Gospel to 50,000 Indians. That's a lot of people. That's a ton of people. And I'm getting ready to go up and preach. And right before I get ready to go up and preach, the pastor who had invited us says, listen brother, TV stations are here. When you get ready to go up, you can talk about Jesus, just don't say He's the only way. And I go, what? He says, yes, it will be bad. We can't do that. I said, I can't do that. 
I said, I can't do that. He is the only way. Well, you can talk about Jesus, just don't, don't say He's the only way. And I said, but He is the only way. Okay, brother, okay, do what you think you need to do, he said. And so, I preach. And I, and I quoted John 14. A thousand Hindus came forward in a place that it cost them. It cost them there. It cost them. You will always be pressured to compromise by the enemy. But guys, I'm going to tell you, if you're more loyal to protect your job, our family, even our own lives, if we're more loyal to those things rather than to Jesus, then we have to question if we really know Him and trust Him. You see, all of our lives are expendable for the Gospel. Matthew 10.38, Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy to be my disciple. I mean, why, why are you going to pursue saving your life and losing your soul? Luke 9 says the same thing. Take up your cross daily. That's an instrument of execution. Why? He goes on to say in Luke 9, right after 23, he says, He who gains a world but forfeits his soul, what does he gain? You don't, you don't want to gain the world and forfeit your soul. Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything lost for the sake. Over in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for what? The sake of the elect, that they may know the God I know. I think of guys like Perry Bowers, who came to Christ. His dad didn't want anything to do with him. He wrote his dad for years and years and years and years and his dad wouldn't even take his calls. Why? Simply because he became a believer. Dawasinghe, from the time he became a believer over in India, his dad kicked him out of his house. He never saw his dad again. His dad died out of relationship because Dawa chose Jesus over family. I think of John Monger. John Monger in prison, not once, but twice. Two different times, two different countries. I want you to hear in his own words what he says. I want you to hear what, how he talks about him. By the way, if you go, well, I'm just not where he is. He had been a believer only a year the first time he was in prison and beaten. Only a year. Only a year. In 1994, 1994 September 2, I was arrested by the Netanese government. And uh, I was kept in the police custody for 28 days. I was beaten so badly, along with my 10 other friends, uh, four, four girls, and then we were seven of us, seven boys. We were beaten so badly. We were uh, tortured so badly there. And then, again, the same question they asked, whether you um, deny your Jesus or you will go to prison. And we said, no, we'll not deny Jesus. And after 28 days, we were sentenced to be in the prison for three and a half years in Nepal, uh, Nepal prison. And that prison, prison name was called Ilam prison. And we were in that prison. We were put into the prison for 15 months on the top of the hill in Nepal. Oh, that, that, I thought that prison is only for criminals, only for bad people, but 
I was really shocked, but I really thank God that God gave me this privilege to be suffer and to be the prisoner for Christ. And uh, I was confined in the prison for 15 months, but I really thank God that uh, the voice of martyrs in America, they came to know about us. I don't know from where they came to know and they published our, our news and they pressurized the Nepal government. And in 1996, I was released from prison. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's that, these are the things that I went through. What would you do? Deny him, you can walk free. I think we deny him for far less than our freedom from prison. You know, it's going to get tough here. And I think he's purifying. And we need to decide if we're going to be loyal to him. We're going to trust his plan. We're going to trust his power. We're going to trust his word. Because the world around us, they're going to keep saying inclusivity, inclusivity, bringing it all together. The truth by its very nature is exclusive. You don't get to determine your truth. You, Brad, do you want to fly on an airplane where a pilot thinks he's at 30,000 feet when he's really at 15,000 feet? His truth is he's at 15,000 feet. We don't operate that way in an airplane. Tom, do you want to do a business deal where a guy, his truth is he gives you $10,000, but he's supposed to give you $50,000? No, that doesn't work. Except in the area of sex, sexual identity, immorality, and spirituality. We don't allow that to work in other realms, even though they're trying to change even math now in our culture to make math more subjective, which is absurd. And science. And science, too. So we have our, our, our course that we're going to have to run. We don't get to choose our course, but we get to choose who we run it with. And I'm asking you guys to run it with Jesus. And let's run it together. And let's run it true and stay true to the gospel. Father, thank you for John Monger. I can't imagine, Lord the beatings he took and all the things he did. And I'm so grateful for the impact in my own life of his ministry and his witness. It is, it is forever helped change me in the way I think about persecution and the way I think about problems at dealing with sharing the gospel with people. I pray for every man in here. I pray for every uh, family that's represented here, Lord, that we would be faithful people who present the gospel that we're loyal to Jesus above every other loyalty and when we fail that you will be there in your mercy to pick us up and help us get up and do it again to try to live for you even though it's hard you just want us to be loyal and persevering so help us to be persevering saints we love you and we praise you amen